We were talking in Sunday school about odd words and the way they're made up. And I got to tell you, as someone who comes from Germans, they're the kings of these kind of words. What is a doppelganger? Shout it out. It's an evil twin. Why do the Germans have a word for that? Is it, a, is it a big problem over there? You bump into that every once in a while. Oh, there's my doppelganger. Yeah, he's evil. Yeah, don't, don't mind him. Let me tell you a few other words that I found. And I thought about looking up how to pronounce them so I'd say them right. And then I decided it would be more enjoyable if I just assumed that my Germanic roots would kind of give me an instinct for them. There's a word called Treppenwitz. It's that witty comeback that you should have had at the tip of your tongue, but now you realize it too late. Why don't we have a word for that, right? Isn't that something that happens all the time? Schnapside. An idea you had while drunk that you will probably regret. I love that the word schnapps is in it. That is so perfect. All right, this one I don't even... Pockpfeifenjeicht. Pockpfeifenjeicht. A face, <laughs> a face that deserves to be punched. <laughs> They've got a word for that. You've got a real, and it's so long. You got a real pack typhoon franchise there. Frem Sherman, the feeling of being ashamed on someone else's behalf. Again, why don't we have a word for that? And then there is the word you've probably heard. It's a little more like doppelganger. It's it's kind of coming to our our vocabulary of schadenfreude. Schadenfreude is the idea that you kind of get a little feeling of happiness from seeing someone else fail. So it's kind of a shameful feeling. Have you ever, have you ever gotten that? And then you just feel ashamed of it. You, you hear of, of someone who was your rival in high school, or maybe you didn't even have that much connection, but you find out they've just crashed and burned, and you're kind of like, <laughs> Wait, why am, I, why am I happy about that? And I'll tell you, we see that idea in the church. We see this notion of, I don't like it when my fellow believers or some other church, some pastors thinking I don't like it when some other pastor, or maybe we think I don't like it when some other denomination or tradition is doing well. We kind of like to hear that they're not. And that, of course, should not be, but it is at the heart of how the devil tries to drag us away from the love that should hold us together and build us up. Oscar Wilde once told a, a tale, a fictional tale, uh, about the devil. I assume it's fictional. He didn't have inside knowledge about the devil. But he was crossing the Libyan desert. And he came across this desert hermit. And there he was sitting holy and, and divorced from all of the pleasures and comforts of the world and meditating on Scripture. And there was a small number of demons there tormenting this, this holy hermit. And... He shook off each of their evil suggestions easily. They said, go back and, and find some gold and women and, and you know, go back and, and sow your wild oats. And he was like, no way, I'm not giving in to that temptation. And the devil watched his lieutenants fail to sway this hermit. And after a while, he stepped in and he said, you're, you're doing this in a way that is crude. Let me show you. Permit me for one moment. And he walked up and whispered to the holy man, your brother has just been made bishop of Alexandria. And suddenly this look of malignant envy 
covered the face of this holy man and clouded the once serene visage and the devil turned to his imps and said, that's the kind of thing we want to tempt holy people with. There is this spirit of bitter competition from the very beginning. Jesus chooses his 12 and they begin to compete in a very unhealthy way. You know it's unhealthy when they're walking down the street and Jesus says, what are you talking about? And they don't want to tell him because the answer is, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And you know, we know these guys, if you've read the Bible a lot, you know it wasn't just, no, I'm greater. It was like, you give me a break. We all know what you're like. We all know your, your uh, shortcomings. We all know how you are going to mess up in the kingdom of God. I'm the greatest. I'll sit at his right hand. And my brother's going to sit at his left hand. What are you talking about? I'm going to be at his right hand and you're going to be at his left hand. Well, I know that you guys aren't going. And there is this sense. And even after Jesus' death and resurrection, we know that Peter, he, he stepped away from following Jesus faithfully and denied he'd ever met him. And then Jesus, what does he do? He steps in and restores him. And you think, okay, now Peter's going to be holy from here on out. But he still has a little of this spirit. This, this kind of sense of, wait a minute, good things should happen to me. And if bad things happen to me, I'd like to know they're going to happen to others as well. A little, a little of that schadenfreude. Remember, right after that, he's telling Peter, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went wherever you want to go. But when you are old, others will dress you and bring you someplace you do not want to go. Telling him the way that he would glorify God with a martyr's death. <laughs> Peter's first reaction is he turns to John and goes, yeah, what about him? <laughs> and Jesus says, well, if I want him to live all the way until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. But what is that to you? And, and you know, in the church, when we hear, there's another church that's growing insanely fast, and, and, and you think, you know, those of us in leadership especially, well, why aren't we growing as fast? Hey, don't worry about that. What is that to you? You follow me. We don't need any schadenfreude in the church. There is unhealthy competition. And there is a church culture that is building on it and trading on it. Who, who gives the most in the church? Who does the most? Who matters the most? That one, by the way, should be a no-brainer. Who matters the most in the church? And between congregations, we see a similar spirit of jealousy. And bitterness and competition. Outreach Magazine, every year they come out with their list, now you have to buy it, of the 100 fastest growing churches in America and the 100 largest churches in America. The largest one has 47,000 members in it. And, and it's all based on self-reporting numbers. And I started noticing more lately that people will, they're kind of, well, I, I kind of doubt their self-reported numbers. Maybe we ought to be higher on the list. There's this sense of competition. This, this sense of not wanting to celebrate and laugh and have joy with those who are in the midst of joy and weep and mourn with those who are mourning. And what's more, this gives birth to this, this culture in which instead of focusing together on reaching the lost as the kingdom of God, we try to steal from each other. You remember that story that Nathan told David to show him his sin? He went to David and he said, let me tell you a little story. 
It's about a, a little shepherd boy, and, and he had his lamb, and his lamb was his best friend, which is weirdly sad, but whatever. And he, so he's got his lamb, and he, and he loved the lamb like a son. And then right next door is this rich man, and he had flocks and flocks. And he was having someone come over, and he wanted to impress them, and he wanted to serve them a, a fatted lamb. So he, he said, well, that guy treats his lamb really well. Bring me his lamb. And David said, oh, I can't even bear to hear that. Bring me that guy. Of course, Nathan was talking about him. I'll tell you what, do we see some of that today? i got a lot of sheep, but I still want to steal yours. Bring them to, to beef up my flock. That's not the kind of thing we should see. As a church, if someone walks in the back door and, and we find out, oh, you belong to another church and there's just some kind of factitious thing, it's not heresy, it's not unhealthy, it's just something, some little disagreement and you're thinking maybe I'll bail, we ought to encourage them to go back home and belong just as we would hope they would for us. There is an unhealthy competition. And yet, in this passage, we see that there can be friendly and healthy competition in churches and among different churches. You remember when we brought out the scale for the boys and the girls and tried to get as many pennies as we could for the cause. I don't remember what the cause was. I think it was, it was perhaps the, the Lansing City Rescue Mission and we would weigh it. And I don't remember the children turning on each other. There weren't any fist fights or anything. It was all in good fun. I could see us perhaps one of these years when the uh, love clothing suck it to me thing comes around, maybe we find out which, which uh, group, uh, left or right or whatever, can come up with the most underwear. Eh, nobody's going to be angry with each other. We could have fun and it could be a way to kind of inspire each other and, and, and provoke each other to work harder. I've seen this happen even across denominational lines. Oh, we can't let those Presbyterians beat us. Ha <laughs> ha. Healthy competition in which we recognize each other as brothers and sisters and love each other. And this was going on in Corinth. The background again, as we said last week, 1 Corinthians 16, where he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. This was a particular offering for those Christians in Jerusalem who were poor, who were persecuted, who were struggling, and Paul has a heart for them. And wants the churches all around the Christian world to supply for their need. Last week, he described their taking up this collection as abounding in this act of grace. And it's an act of grace because they've been shown grace. God gave us grace by sending his son Jesus to die on a cross and to rise again on the third day to take our sins and cover them and pay for them. And now, how can we not? And he said to them, essentially, the equivalent of that, that cliche, a rising tide lifts all ships. This is going to help you. This is for your benefit. As we help each other, you'll know that next time when you're persecuted and you're poor, they'll provide for you. We love each other as brothers and sisters in the kingdom when the kingdom is working as it should. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that word rivalry there, it, it denotes strife or factions, not a sense of healthy competition. In, in the competition we might have with one another, there has to be a sense of unity. We're all on the same team. 
Who can score the most goals? And I'll celebrate and high five with every goal you score. This goes back to the very beginning of God calling a people to himself. Leviticus 26, when there's unity, five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. There's always partnerships. There's, there's no lone wolves in God's kingdom. When they, when they come to him, Elijah, remember, comes to him, Elijah, rather, oh, Lord, I, it's just me. I am carrying the Holy Spirit. No, it's not. It's not just you. Don't think that way. I have 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Look through the scriptures and see the partnerships that form. The church is always represented by the idea of two or three. Remember when Jesus says this, two or three gather together. Two or three were needed to be witnesses to a truth. And so he calls together convocation. Mary and the other Mary. Paul and Barnabas. And then later, after they're falling out, Paul and Silas. Paul and Titus here, whom he calls my partner and fellow worker. Going back into the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha, Ezra and Nehemiah, Ruth and Naomi, Deborah and Barak, uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel. I say again, Joshua and Zerubbabel, because Zerubbabel is fun to say. But then go all the way to the end, the book of Revelation. We have this apocalyptic picture of the church. And it's not a lone guy like John the Baptist out in the wilderness, just shrieking the truth and no one's listening. No, it's two witnesses. Two together. Jesus sent out his disciples, first the twelve, two by two. Then he sent out the seventy-two, two by two. Because two is better than one. There are always partnerships in the church. When we get our minds around that, we see God at work in amazing ways. F.B. Meyer was one of these great preachers. But he was one of these second-tier great preachers. He was in London. People still read his works, by the way. And in London, he preached at the same time as Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> I would not want to be doing that. And uh, G. Campbell Morgan, who, who were kind of the A-listers. Their churches were on the 100 fastest growing churches and all this stuff. They, they were the ones who were bringing the crowds. And as they brought the crowds and their churches grew bigger and bigger, F.B. Meyer noticed some of his people going there. And he started to notice in his soul that he was not happy that those other churches were growing. Not even if, uh, apart from the fact that, that his people were tempted to go and listen to Spurgeon or Morgan, but just the fact that that's where they were going, not to listen to him. And he began to feel something poisonous, something that, that would give birth to schadenfreude. He'd love to hear that something bad had happened. In fact, later on, something very bad did happen in Spurgeon's church. And it broke his heart because what he did was nipped it in the bud. He began to pray, Lord, how do I deal with this envious thoughts and this, this hard heart that I'm experiencing? I'm jealous of them and I don't want to be jealous. And God, just in his spirit, not audibly, but said to him essentially, listen, you need to pray for these men. And pray for their churches. And he was like, yeah, really though, but what should I do? No, you need to pray for them. So he began to pray. And at first it was begrudged prayer. I don't want to do this, but all right. And he started to see his prayer answered. He's praying that Spurgeon's church will grow. Spurgeon's church is already growing. It grows more. He's praying that Morgan's church will go. It was already growing. It grows more. In fact, it grew so much, so quickly, those two churches, that they actually had overflow. And he wrote in his, his uh, memoir, that overflow came to my church, and we grew as well. Paul's strategy, as we saw last week, 
In chapter 7, he had said, I have confidence in you. And then in chapter 8, he says, yeah, but I want to motivate you. Let me tell you about the Macedonians and how much they're giving. They're poor, whereas you're pretty rich. They're suffering, whereas you're doing all right. And here's how well they're doing. In verse eight or verse 5 rather, of, of chapter 8, which we looked at last week, and he says that the Macedonians were doing not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So they're, they're giving well beyond what we had even hoped. They're giving first of themselves and then monetarily. And, and we see that this is happening through the will of God. The Macedonians weren't the source. That's why he calls it an act of grace, a gift of grace. This liberality wasn't something the Macedonians had dug down deep into their hearts and found, and now God is calling on the Corinthians, you dig down deeper and find even more. No, this was God's grace to them. And they simply offered themselves as God's instruments, and God worked through them and in them. Again, Philippians 2, It is God who works in you, both to will and to work. For his good pleasure, God who made them willing. And this brings us, of course, to our text for today. We look at verses 16 and 17. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Once again, Paul starts a section with giving thanks to God. That's kind of how he frames everything going on in his world, whether it's difficulty and trials or huge blessings or good friends, as in this case. We see here that Titus's heart responded spontaneously to what Paul said to him, and he said, I was already thinking I would go to them and help them to see through to the end, that thing that they started a year ago, putting together an offering for the suffering saints in Jerusalem. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. This famous brother is unnamed. Some companion in preaching and, and you know, we look at all the options, and we think, yes, probably Luke. Luke was with Paul when he first entered into Europe preaching the gospel. He's, he's keeping uh, tabs and writing down the history of what Paul is doing. He's, he's a, a gifted preacher and writer. Spurgeon says, it may have been Luke. Probably it was. It may not have been Luke. Probably it was not. <laughs> we don't know who it was. And that's probably how this famous brother would have it. You think of how Calvin said, when I die, you bury me in an unmarked grave where no one can find me. I don't want to distract anyone from lifting up and bringing glory to God. Could have been Luke. It could have been Barnabas. But whoever it is, it's the kind of man who, who is glad that his name was not lifted up in the letter. He'd rather be forgotten so that God gets the glory. He'd rather partner with churches so together they can lift up God rather than divide and compete with each other trying to lift up and make a great name for themselves. Verse 22, And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. Another unnamed guy. I did a little digging and reading, and, and probably I think I know who this is. 
guy goes by the name of uh, Trophimus. When you type it out in Word, it un- underlines him in squiggly red, like that's not a word. Trophimus was probably the, the brother who was sent, and his name isn't now a household name like Luke, like Timothy, or like even Titus in most of the church, and yet he was ready to go. See, the, the names don't matter. In the competition in the church, the names don't matter. Great examples of the care and transparency is what we see here. Well, what should happen when we are dealing with money or anything of value in the church? There should be openness. There should be great care. There should be absolute transparency. And he says, listen, I know you started a year ago and you've been building this thing up. I'm going to send some people and I'm going to bring some people with me when I take that offering from you so that we can all safeguard it. He calls them messengers. And that word in the Greek is apostola, apostoloi. Uh, the word usually translated apostles. We talked about this in Sunday school a little this morning, meaning that this is the less technical sense. Those who are special envoys of God. And he says that, that they are even equated in some way with the glory of Christ. Since their, their love reflects God's love, Christ's love for the people, and their love comes from seeing him face to face. And so they're joining him in collecting these gifts in order to guard the honor and glory of the Lord. Why does this need to happen? Why do we need to send not one but two extra people? Why isn't Paul and Titus enough? He addresses that in verses 20 and 21. The first one gives the negative side, the second the positive side. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. So that no one should blame. And there's a lot of blame going around in Corinth. He's got this disgraceful slander being leveled at him in his absence. And rather than say, hey, I'm not even going to acknowledge that, he says, all right, I'll make sure that there is absolutely no room for accusation. I will be above reproach. There will be no even appearance of evil in what I do. And as Paul delivers the gift to Jerusalem, he'll be accompanied by a team of men, well known for their integrity and chosen by the church so that it doesn't look like there's any cronyism going on. And those will come with me in order to guarantee a public accounting for the gifts and you know, provide some extra protection against thieves on the way. It's important that not only God, but his people see that the church is handling ministry, is handling matters in an ethical and above-board way. And it's interesting how even when things are being handled in an above-board way, if it's all happening in the dark, rumors begin. There can be discord, there can be factions, there can be problems. We've seen this happen. Many crippling problems can be traced back to a lone wolf, not partnering up, not opening up. An example of that would be Barings Bank, the oldest bank in Britain. And in 1995, it was seeking bankruptcy protection. What happened? How does a 235-year-old bank fail and have to file bankruptcy? A bank that holds $100 million of investments for Queen Elizabeth? Oh, you don't want to be filing any bankruptcy. Well, in late 1994, the chief trader for that bank in Singapore started getting turned on to the Japanese market. Things were happening. The the Nikkei market and, and thinking, oh, this is where we want to put a lot of money. Started pumping investments in there. 
And then, of course, in January of 1995, there was a horrible earthquake, and the market tanked. And rather than say, oh, my goodness, we need to diversify, cut our losses, do other stuff, he said, oh, now's the time to buy. Yeah, yeah, we lost money, but shares are low. Let's buy more and more and more, another $900 million. And, of course, it never bounced back. And as it began to go lower and lower, finally they had to file for bankruptcy. And the question can be asked, how can one 28-year-old trader in Singapore sink the largest and oldest bank in England? And the answer seems to go down to a problem with no supervision, a lack of supervision. An article in Time said this, London allowed the Singapore trader to take control of both the trading desk and the backroom settlement operation in Singapore. It's a mix that can be, and in this case was, toxic. For a trader to keep his own books is like a schoolboy getting to grade his own tests. The temptation to cheat can be overwhelming, particularly if the stakes are high enough. If we love each other, and if we trust that God is at work, we ought to be willing to protect each other even from temptation, even from accusation, even from baseless accusation, by being open, by being transparent, not being lone wolves like this one. Richard, get it? Lone wolf banking? No. And as he begins chapter 9, he, he says, listen, I know you've got this stuff. I don't even need to keep writing to you on this, but let me keep writing to you on this. Verse 2, For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. These Macedonians are now being inspired by the Corinthians. That's the, Corinth is the capital of Achaia. And then he turns around and to the Corinthians says, Hey, come on, get excited, because look at the Macedonians. They're stirring one another up. The Christians of Achaia, he's told them, they're characterized by readiness and preparation and zeal. And when he says these things, it's not flattery. I've heard a good definition that, that well, uh, you, you have flattery, which is saying to someone's face what you'd never say behind their back, which is the opposite of gossip, saying behind their back what you'd never say to their face. Here he's saying these good things, these kind things about the Corinthians to their face and behind their back. He's telling the Macedonians about how great Corinth is at giving and how generous they are. And then he's going and saying, hey, I've told them, don't make me look bad. And he's using this, the verb here translated to provoke, used in a good sense, to stimulate. To prov- not, not like pushing somebody's buttons and trying to make them angry. That's how this word is used in the other time it occurs in the New Testament. But provoking in a positive sense. It's, it's very, very Touchy work. You have to be careful not to provoke or irritate or embitter, but to stimulate. And that's what Paul is doing. There are three parties at work here. You look at verse 24, and we see that there's, there's give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So, so you have there represented the Corinthians and the churches and the messengers. These three brothers who are coming. And all eyes were on Corinth to see how these Christians everyone's been talking about would receive these messengers and how they would give this gift. He has hoped to provoke both the generosity of the Macedonians and the Corinthians by showing them each other. This reminds me of Hebrews 10, 24. This is also known as the guilt for skipping church verse, right? 
Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But context, context, and context, back up one verse, because that's how you get the whole sentence. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. We gather together. We come together as a church. We come together in different ways with other churches and in our denomination and across lines of denomination and tradition. One big reason is to stir each other up to good works. To encourage one another to show love and mercy to the least of these. To help those who are in need. To welcome those who are strangers and sojourners. To come together as God's body made up of many different parts, and stir one another up. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. So there's a dual purpose here. Make sure everything's above board. I've got these extra guys. You trust them. One of them was even elected by the churches. And also they're there to to get things ready and get them in order. And in that verse, you don't see in the English so much, but in the Greek, there's three verbs that start with P-R-O, pra, which means beforehand. I want to deal with things beforehand. We don't want to come in last minute, you know, all of a sudden we demand this money that you promised for the churches in Jerusalem. No, we want to be encouraging all along. So that when we arrive, it's not some surprise. Oh, I forgot about that, but it's ready. I've boasted about you. Right? I, I, I remember back in verse 14, uh, chapter 7, I had boasted to him about you and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proven to be true as well. Make sure it stays true or I am going to look stupid. Otherwise, verse 4, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you. For being so confident. It's like in the mob, right? When you vouch for somebody, and then whatever they do reflects on you. Paul wants to keep his fingers and not swim with the fishes, so to speak. He's saying, listen, I want to make sure that I can continue to sing the praises of the church in Corinth, and I won't be lying, and my words won't be in vain. And finally, verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you, And arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. And there in the NIV it says, not as something given grudgingly. We'll look at that uh, next week and begin there. But this word, a willing gift, it can also mean a blessing. It's the word eulogia, where we get the word eulogy to speak well. Uh, The collection is to be a response to God's grace in their lives, not something coerced by a fear of judgment. He wants them not to look and be afraid they're going to look bad in the sight of their fellow Christians, but to think, look at what they're doing. We can do that too. We can together spur each other on to good works. He wants to stir them up to be willing. He'll butter them up if he has to. He'll provoke them. He'll give them a little friendly competition. But it's all for the building up of the church. The whole church. There's no sense that when you fall, I snicker. No, if you go down, we all go down. And if you're lifted up, we're all lifted up. And when you fall, we come around you and we lift you up. 
I think it's worth noting, as we find out in Acts 24, that when Paul finally did arrive in Jerusalem, and it took a while with this gift, he was arrested. And there he was thrown in prison. And there we have the beginning of the end of Paul's career as an apostle, although it certainly didn't end immediately. But this gift was that important to him. That he wanted to make sure the churches had this Christ-like view of the kingdom. That we are all in it together. Friendly competition would be there to tie us closer together, not to drag us apart. I don't know if the Germans have a word for this sort of friendly competition that makes me love you more and makes me come and help you when you fall and makes you come and help me when I fall and makes me celebrate when you have good things happen and makes you celebrate when I have good things happen. Actually, they have the word. It's Write that down. But in the church, we ought to have one. And it probably is agape. The kind of love that Jesus showed us, modeled for us, and commanded us to show one another. Let us pray that in our church and in our churches, we have this kind of love. That we have that kind of care. That we have that kind of unity. And that when one of us falls, we can know we are not alone, but we are part of the family of God. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this example of how churches can come to the aid of other churches, of how your, your kingdom is made up of many, many different cities and regions, but Lord, all one in your name, all glorifying you. And Lord, we confess that far too often we are happy to hear of churches that were growing faster falling off, of, of churches that are nearby not growing, and Lord, hoping that means we'll grow, and Lord, that, that we hear of churches of other traditions having problems and think, well, at least it's not us. Lord, we pray you would give us a heart that is ready to, with compassion, move and embrace each other. That, Lord, we would be ready to, to hold each other up, lift each other up, even to lie down next to a church that has fallen in order to show solidarity to help them know they're not alone. And Lord, we know that there have been times in the history of this church that other churches have come around us, particularly at our beginning, when churches of four different denominations said, we'll help that little fledgling Sunday school program in South Lansing. Lord, we're thankful for that, that we've been able to then take that act of grace and pass it on to Doors of Healing Tabernacle and Lansing Chin Baptist Church and, and the Poly Fellowship. Lord, we pray that we would not lose a kingdom mentality that, Lord, we would want to see the tide rise so that all the ships will rise with it. In your holy name we pray. Amen.